The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans, chapter 12, verse 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showering honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient. Deserve tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and is seek it to show hospitality. Bless, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, be, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to, to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So beautifully done. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you today. What a week it's been since the last time we were together. And uh, today is the final uh, sermon in our series on politics. And I I just got to be honest with you, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse by this time. Uh, I've been covering this subject in my midweek devotionals. We've been in a three-week series on this. But what I hope uh, as your pastor is that by this time, uh, you have begun to deeply, deeply consider uh, the truth that we are going to marinate in uh, for several weeks in an extended Advent series that begins next week. And it's this, for unto us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, and his peace, there will be no end. There is no true peace outside of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are talking about koinonia today. It's not just the name of a new Christ Pres congregation. It's actually a Greek word uh, in the Bible, uh, meaning, uh, as Scott McKnight, scholar Scott McKnight uh, has defined it, a fellowship of difference, T.S., a fellowship of people who can't have fellowship outside of Jesus Christ, but suddenly inside of Christ, this whole world of opportunity opens up for family. Not just tolerance, not just putting up with one another, but deep, deep love, even and especially across the lines of difference. So Walker Percy in his 
book, The Moviegoer, there's one of his, uh, one of his characters that says this. I do not know whether I am liberal or conservative. I am nevertheless enlivened by the hatred which one bears for the other. All the friendly and likable people seem dead to me. Only the haters seem alive anymore. And this, Percy's character says, is upside down. This is not the way it should be, in other words. Uh, we heard a speech, many of us did last night, and it's a version of a speech that we hear every four years. Those of you who didn't vote for me, let's give each other a chance. And I think that's a good word, to give the benefit of the doubt, to hope for the best, to wish for the best. But koinonia is really where the answer is to that hope. Koinonia is really where the answer is to that aspiration. What seems impossible out in the world is not only possible, but it's made real in Christ. So there are two, uh, there are two cities that uh, are going to serve as our subject matter today as I try to distinguish what life outside of Christ and life inside of Christ can look like among people who have different perspectives. The first is the city of God and the second is the city on a hill. Uh, one has to do with what happens inside the family of God and, and then the other has to do with how the family of God is called to engage the world around it. And so we'll talk first about the city of God. It, 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 and the city of God in sort of short form is a, a fellowship, a oneness in Christ that's unachievable outside of Christ. So I'll give you an example. So, so last week I, I, gave, uh, I gave a sermon on this stuff, sort of a pre-election message and uh, love across the lines of difference, uh, empathizing with one another's different perspectives and why some people lean this way and why some people lean the other way because of their Christian convictions, uh, led to, as you might imagine, several emails, several phone calls, several clarifying conversations. And there were two exchanges in particular. Uh, one was with a person who's a good bit far to the right of me. And the other was with a person who is a good bit far to the left of me, both members of our church, both assuming the best, both giving the benefit of the doubt, and both struggling. How do we get here from there? How do we, get, how do we move forward in light of this? How do we move forward in light of that? How, how, how can you claim Christ and do this? How can you claim Christ and think that? And I said to my wife toward the end of the week, I love these people. And, and, and I love what especially those two conversations represent. It represents something that's tense, hard, messy sometimes, but of Jesus. That Jesus has a broad embrace. The narrow path requires calls for and is built upon the broad embrace of Jesus Christ, who came to save and forgive and create belonging for Roman centurions and Jews that they executed, and everyone in between. 
the city of God, a fellowship of oneness that is unachievable outside of Christ. So the imperial rhetoric of Rome at the time, or, or close to the time, was Pax Romana. You ever heard that phrase? Probably learned about it in elementary school, or maybe some history majors. But the Pax Romana, that means the Roman peace. And it was a declaration that the Roman emperor made that we are a nation at peace, that the state of our union is strong. And this peace is available to all. There were great benefits to the Pax Romana. It was a time of great affluence. Some of the world's greatest architecture was built uh, and created during that time. Had this vast uh, travel system through the roads that they built. Uh, accessibility to food and water. Uh, there was a lot that the Roman peace had going for it, but there was an underbelly. And it was this, that if you were at odds with those in power and spoke about it, you would have hell to pay. You know, what, what many of us don't know in our, our 21st century American context as we read the Bible is, is when, when Paul says, if you confess that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus is Lord in that context. And he, by the way, he said that in the book written to the Roman Christians. Jesus is Lord is a politically subversive statement implying very strongly that this is what we mean. Caesar is not. Our peace comes from the Prince of Peace, not from a violent Spin master. You know, for Christians and Jews, there was a, a pretty significant tension with the Roman peace because there were laws that restricted religious freedom, that restricted free speech, that glorified debased sexuality, including pedophilia and prostitution. Infanticide was legal, any unwanted child could be terminated by its parents, disabled, girls, just didn't look the way you wanted them to look, weren't as strong as you'd hoped they would be, you could kill your own child. Christians developed a dumpster ministry where they would go to dumpsters and retrieve children that were tossed out by Roman citizens and adopt them into their own homes. What else? Demand for absolute loyalty, which I've already talked about. And to add insult to injury, and this is, why, this is why people hated tax collectors so much in the New Testament. You were being asked to fund this system. You weren't just being asked, you were being required to fund a system that violated almost everything that you believed in. So the Roman peace wasn't really a Roman peace unless you were a Roman that was on board with the emperor. You know, I will be everybody's leader. That language is inspiring to those who are on board and it feels oppressive and sometimes is oppressive to those who are not. 
You know, Michael Foucault, French philosopher in the stream of Nietzsche, put it this way. Whenever a leader says we are going to be for the people, what they really mean is we're going to be for the people who agree with us about what the people need. And we're going to exclude everyone else. There is a bit of a subtweet in that. Just take a look at the next State of the Union address. We've already said this. It's going to happen again. Half the room's going to stand up and cheer. The other half of the room's going to sit down and lament and be upset and vice versa. Because that's the state of things. Human beings are divided. It's not unique to 21st century Western Hemisphere. Yeah, human beings have been divided ever since the beginning of time. Chapter 4 of Genesis, a brother kills his brother. <laughs> Out of envy, Cain kills Abel. And, and, and violence and opposition has been the issue in the world ever since. But then inside of Christ, the city of God, this is the city that exists in every city. It's like a pod. Uh, in, in, in every city on the map where there are churches and where there is Christian community. A city within every city. You know, Augustine, St. Augustine wrote a massive volume by that title, The City of God. And in there, he essentially uh, extracts the things that scripture say that will distinguish the city of God from the city of man around it. And one of the primary things that will distinguish peace in Jesus from the Roman peace, Pax Christos from Pax Romana, is that loyalty to the king is secured not through coercive force, but through persuasive, life-giving, self-donating love. He is the prince of shalom. He is the prince of peace. And Paul in this text here describes some of the, the dynamics inside the city of God, which, which are counterculture to the dynamics of the city of man around it. There's a genuine, genuineness, he says. There's a hatred for evil and a clinging to what's good. There's love. There's empathy. Everyone rejoices with the rejoicers. In other words, envy is not a central attribute, jealousy, rivalry, conceit, self-centered, self-exalting competition. Those aren't dynamics uh, that are held up inside the city of God. And it also weeps with the weepers. It moves toward the weak rather than avoiding the weak. Welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. It's harmonious, belonging to every kind of person, the poor, the disenfranchised have a place at the table. And, and, and this phrase, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Remember, this is Paul, a Jewish man, writing to a Gentile community of Christian believers. Brotherly affection. In other words, there's this dynamic of family. Not emperor subject, but brother to brother, even Jesus, our, our king, calls himself our elder brother. Family. And in a family, nobody says to somebody else, 
in a family, because you're liberal, or because you're conservative, or because you're weak, or because you're flaky, or because you're high maintenance, you're dead to us. That's not what a family does. A family does the work not only to live together under the same roof, but to love together under the same roof. You know, C.S. Lewis said, dogs and cats should always be brought up together because it broadens their minds so. You know, one of the commentaries I read um, on this passage said this, in in a family, nobody has to audition in order to belong. Nobody has to audition in order to belong. And you see this played out in in Paul's writings, and, and Romans is a great example of this. The first 11 chapters are the chapters filled with what, what you call uh, indicatives, the who you are statements, and the, the whose you are, who you belong to, and, and, and what it means because you belong to him. 11 whole chapters where Paul just drills it into the citizens of the city of God's head and hearts, that you are justified not by your works, but by faith in Jesus Christ, that God has chosen you, not because you are good, but because he is good. He loves you, not because you've worked hard to make yourself lovable, but just because he loves you. That's his nature. That's who he is. That's what he's like. That's what he does. He loves. He so loves. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from his love. I could go on and on and on. There's so much in here. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, it's all over the place. Indicative after indicative after indicative after indicative to remind everyone who trusts Jesus Christ, even with a wee bitty tiny little mustard seed sized faith, is in. You don't have to audition. You know, Jesus says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, I don't condemn you, before he gets to the ethics conversation with her. And that's how he is with all of us. And then he waits all the way until chapter 12 of a 16-chapter letter to say, therefore, brothers, here are the imperatives. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then we get to this passage where he starts with a culture of love. There's belonging and Accountability. Yes, accountability. It's, it's not some schmoopy, um, you know, everybody accepts everybody, and what's right for you is right for you, what's right for me is right for me, and we all just get along. Come on, people now, smile on each other, try to love one another right now. It, it's more than that. It's way beyond the love of an acid trip at Woodstock. Way beyond that. You know, you're, let's say you're a member of CrossFit. If you're, you know, you finish your workout and you've got your tribe of a dozen or so people that you work out with, if somebody starts asking you, why are you dating him? 
Or why are you drinking so much these days? Or what are you doing on that website? Or why are you doing business like that? Why are you using money like that? Why do you treat your wife like that? Why do you talk down to your kids like that? What's going to happen if you say that to one of your CrossFit tribe? They're probably going to say, get lost. But in the city of God, where a cultural core value is to hate what's evil and to cling to what is good, part of what that means is to get each other's back, to protect each other from ourselves. And, 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 and that which is you know, potentially destructive and self-destructive to us, to look out for each other in that way. You know, Galatians chapter 6 gives a beautiful picture of this. It says, if, if any among you in the city of God is the implication, if any among you is spiritual and someone is caught in transgression, then you who are spiritual should restore that person and do so gently lest you too be tempted. Now that word restore, when it's used in other places from that time and season and place of history, it's used in the medical journals. The word restore points to the restoration of a broken bone where there's that initial painful, you know, snapping back in place and then the process of healing that takes place after that and rehabilitation. Inside the city of God, there's, there's... There's belonging for anyone who believes and restoration as part of what we do for one another. So that's the city of God. And then there's the city on a hill. And the city on the hill has especially to do with how the city of God interacts with the city of man. How the people of God engage with their neighbors. And the key word here is in verse 12, and that word is hospitality, which in the original Greek means the love of strangers. What what, what Paul is saying here when he uses the the word hospitality, the love of strangers, and he surrounds it with all of this other language that I've talked about here. And then he goes on to say things like, you know, do what's good and and honorable in the sight of all. And as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Associate with the lowly. Even if your enemy is hungry or thirsty, feed them and give them a drink. So so Paul unpacks what he means by, by practice hospitality here. Another way to put it is, he says, become, because of what's been done for you in Christ, because of how deeply you've been loved, because of all of the indicatives that I've been gushing on you from from chapters 1 through 11, we didn't have chapters at that time, Uh, the chapters, you know, divisions came later, but let's just pretend they had chapters at that time. What what I've been saying to you, chapter 1 through 11, now go give it away. Now let the cup that, that is gushing with what I've been pouring into you flow over out into your community so that you will be, become the kind of community that if somehow you were voted out of the city, there would be weeping in the streets, not dancing in the streets. Because to eject Christians from the city is to eject love from the city, is to eject good neighboring 
from the city, is to eject mercy and compassion from the city, is to eject the dumpster ministry from the city, is to leave the vulnerable vulnerable again, and to, to leave the poor poor again, and to leave the weak unattended to, and the widows lonely, and the orphans homeless, to eject Christians out of the city leads to weeping in the streets, not dancing in the streets. That's the vision that's being painted for the city of God existing as life-giving neighbors, a prophetic minority, love-driven minority in the midst of the city of man. You remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist. We went over this last week. Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is doubting Jesus because John the Baptist is suffering as a political prisoner. He says, Lord, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And remember from last week, Jesus sent word back to John the Baptist, tell John that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor receive good news. What Paul is saying here is that the, the church is the continuation of that healing effect that Jesus told John about in Matthew chapter 11. How does this play out politically? You know, as the pastor of a politically diverse church, which I delight in, and it also just creates a lot more conversations, which I also delight in, I've been in a disproportionate number during this season of conversations around the question, you know, how can you be a Christian and swing in this direction? Or how can you be a Christian and swing in that direction? And, and And I think it really boils down to this. In the same way that, 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 that Paul says that the body of Christ is one body with many gifts, you know, some are given the gifts of preaching, some are given the gifts of administration, some the gifts of mercy, some the gifts of radical generosity, and so on. In the same way, the body of Christ is one body with many passions, with, with many orientations toward specific, particular populations. And the left claims advocacy, or they claim to claim advocacy for one, you know, set of vulnerable people, and and the right claims to claim advocacy for another set of vulnerable people. And Christians whose passion they feel is best represented over here, the passion that God has put on their heart for the unborn, for racial minorities, for asylum seekers, for, you know, the homeless and the poor in the streets. And, 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 and others, you know, see their passion represented over here for similar things. That's why. One body, many gifts. I don't condemn you for not being a good preacher. In the same way that you shouldn't condemn me for not being a good singer or a good administrator. We are all given gifts to contribute to the whole. And the beauty about 
Christian politics is we do not need imperial support. We don't need the support of the state to do what God's called us to do in the city of God. Living also as a city on a hill within our cities. Taken together with all of their collected passions, Christians in the world are called to address every need, fighting on behalf of all the world's vulnerable. Historians were confounded by Christians. One historian said, I can't figure them out. They're conservative in the bedroom and they're promiscuous with their money. I don't understand that. That's backwards to the value system of Rome. They put widows in families. They do the same for orphans and for those who are destitute and without a home. They draw out dignity from prostitutes and criminals and crooks. And their care of the sick. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Let's let's get a little bit of understanding about what happened back then. Another historian named Dionysius wrote in real time about Christians in er the early Roman Empire in the post-New Testament era. And he wrote, Christians show unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one and, 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 and never thinking only of one another and thinking only of of one another and others. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. It was considered a state of emergency. If a Christian community witnessed or heard that somebody was lying, dying on the side of the road because their family members in Rome had tossed them out because they were contagious. And so the Christians had this rescue mission in the midst of plagues and pandemics that they were about. This also included their political enemies. You know, Jesus in the Great Commission says, go into all the world, and then it's, it's unpacked further in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1 where it says that includes Samaria. If you go to Luke chapter 9, you'll see that that the disciples didn't even understand this because they're passing through a Samaritan village and they they say to Jesus, you know, we we know you've got all this power. Uh, Shouldn't we call fire down on these Samaritans and, and just watch them burn? And Jesus rebukes them. He says, you don't even know what you're talking about. These are your neighbors. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's God's concern. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Or as as Nietzsche said, in, in your attempts to defeat the monster, be careful that you don't become the monster. But overcome evil with good. Or as Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And then finally, the last point for Christian political engagement, the city of God engaging the world as a city on a hill is this. 
Make zeal beautiful again. Make zeal beautiful again. This word zeal, it's four letter word. It's literally a four letter word. Z-E-L-A-L. One, two, three, four. Four letter word. And we've treated it that way at least all of my lifetime. When you hear the word zeal, you think, ugh, zeal, ugh, fundamentalist, ugh, get away. But here Paul is telling them to be zealous. What does he mean by zeal? I was in a, in a conversation with, with Tim and Kathy Keller once around zeal or fundamentalism. You know, those are two in, sort of interchangeable words. And, and Kathy said this. She says, fundamentalism is bad only if you have bad fundamentals. Have you ever met an Amish terrorist, she asks. You remember the Amish community where a milkman who had a severe mental illness or or a breakdown of some sort breaks into a schoolroom and opens fire on all the children, killing a whole room full of girls. You remember that story? It wasn't long ago. And the man also turned his gun on himself, and his funeral happened a few days after that. And as you might imagine, nobody but his immediate family showed up until the Amish community showed up as well. And they sat through the funeral with the widow of the man who had shot their own children. And afterwards, with empathy, person after person from the Amish community approached the man's family and said, you know, this has been terrible for us, but we we have no idea what the story was that, that, that led up to this, and it must have affected you as well. And the Amish took up an offering to pay for the expenses of the funeral for this woman, and then they returned home to entrust their children into the hands of the Lord. Have you, have you ever met an Amish terrorist? I mean, in my lifetime, I've heard three stories like this where an Amish community has responded to evil with forgiveness. Have you ever met an Amish terrorist? My answer to that is no. Because when you're fundamental, when what you're really zealous about is a God who gave his life on a Roman cross for his enemies. As he prayed from that cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When that is your fundamental, when that is your primary object of zeal, it not only melts your heart toward him for forgiving you, it also melts your heart toward those who need for you to forgive them. 
to release them from their shame and whatever it is that they're carrying. And then finally, for savoring the moment that we're in, not because of who won and who lost, who's in and who's out, but because to us a child has been born. And his name has been called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, Shalom. There will be no end. Savoring the moment we're in. And and, and speaking of the moment, how wonderfully symbolic, at least to me, I don't know if you carry this passion. I, I don't condemn you if you don't carry this passion as deeply as I do. But it's so deeply meaningful to me that the most divided weekend that we have had as a nation since I've been here to Christ Presbyterian Church is also the day that we are planting a congregation with the Nashville Presbytery's first ever African-American ordained minister in North Nashville. And we will be celebrating communion simultaneously with them across the city as our brothers and sisters. In a city where the protests brought 50,000 people a day downtown. To me, that's remarkable. To me, that's a reality that can't be accomplished by politicians. But it's not only possible in Christ, it's something to be anticipated from Christ. Because he brings peace and tears down dividing walls even between Jews and Gentiles. Remember King David. Remember what he did when he took power. He hurled no insults toward his predecessor, Saul, who gave him all kinds of trouble, who was a bully, an antagonist, mean as a snake, put an assassination attempt on young David's head after David slayed Goliath to save Saul. And this is the thanks I get, right? What does David ask? What is David's first question after he is made king of Israel? Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show favor? How about that? That's what the gospel can do. And if you're ready to affirm what the gospel can do and what we ought to anticipate the gospel doing, I'm going to invite you to stand with me now. And we're going to recite the prayer of St. Francis, a prayer for peace together as our affirmation of faith before we go to the table. All together, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is not in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. 
Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this bread and this cup. We're also mindful that what David said to the young Mephibosheth, the descendant of Saul, to whom he had determined to show favor. As Mephibosheth comes in and calls himself a dead dog, and and, and David says, don't talk about yourself that way, young man. You will always have a seat at the king's table. Lord, we come to you crippled in our own way. We come to you disabled in our own way. You didn't come, Jesus, to take sides. You came to take over. And in taking over, you now reign and rule in such a way where you welcome even the weakest, even the vilest, even the poor. Our sins, they are many. And your mercy is more. And we thank you that that is what qualifies us for belonging. It's the indicatives, not how we've responded to the imperatives, but the indicatives that you've pronounced over us. That there's no condemnation, And there's nothing that can separate Jew or Gentile, right or left, red state or blue state, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated.